You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. It's a Tuesday and it is the 5th of July and it's fantastic to be here myself, Hanif Khan, and I'm joined with Zakriya. Zakriya, assalamu alaikum. May God be with you. May God be with you too. How are you? Uh, all right, pretty tired as normal, but actually <laughs> looking forward to the two fantastic topics we have today to discuss, especially and the weather's really nice as well, and it kind of lifts the mood as well, doesn't mm, it, very it much does, so? It does, yeah. We've been blessed with uh, a very beautiful weather uh, this year. I mean, uh, the sun has been coming up more often than usual. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of leading on to one of our subjects we're talking about yes. in the second hour as well, because we are seeing, we're seeing more hotter days than we are seeing colder days, mm. aren't we, across the world? And it just seems to be that way. But especially when we've got climates like we have in the United Kingdom, it's kind of okay for us because we are, you know, enjoying the good weather. We've not had it uh, so good for so long. Mm. And to this... Uh, extreme, but anyway, it's it's still creating lots of problems um, around the world, and the heat waves are quite severe hmm. with so much drought, and it's causing lots and lots of complications. So that's the subject. Uh, well, well, led into that one actually, because we're talking about it in the second hour. But in hmm. the first hour, we're going to be talking about why is animal welfare so important, and we're going to delve into all the different details on that. But if any of those two subjects kind of really interest you, by all means, look, get in touch, uh, give us a call on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, and obviously you can. Get in touch with us in a normal way through all of our social media channels at Voice of Islam UK. So tweet um, on Instagram, etc. and TikTok, we're all there. But obviously, if you wanted to um, learn more about all the other programs that we have on Voice of Islam, is you can just go to our website on uh, www. and I don't need to say that anyway. We discussed that last time. But voiceofislam.co.uk, and also you can listen to it there as well, can't you? Yeah, you can go to uh, the SoundCloud and also listen to the previous shows. And also, it's on the website if you want to um, uh, listen to the previous shows. Then uh, you can always um, go and and search for the uh, the the shows. Uh, it it's uh, headed. The headings are given as as in as topics, of course. So you can choose your own topic, the topic that you like to listen to, and then, of course, you can listen to the previous shows. But um, as for today's show, of course, um, for the first hour, as Brother Hanif has uh, said, we are speaking about um, why is animal welfare so important. Um, it's a it's an important topic of course it's also related to islam as you know that um god almighty loves every creation of of his so not just humans but every creation that he has created god loves and he judges us um the way you know uh, how we uh, approach how we deal with his creation 
Uh, it could be animals, it could be uh, plants, it could be the atmosphere, everything pretty much. Now, according to the British legal news website Jurist, the UK was the first country in the world to grant animals legal protection from unnecessary suffering back in 1822 and has always been the front runner in the development of EU law on animal welfare. Similarly, while the rights of fellow man are indeed paramount, the religion of Islam does not ignore the rights of the animal kingdom. A verse of the Holy Quran clearly draws one's attention to the fact. And this verse is from chapter 6. God Almighty says, There is not an animal on the earth, nor a birth, nor a bird that flies on its two wings, but they are communities like you. Mm. I mean, it's really important that we are coming to understand that because one of the things that I love the most about our morning prayer is in the mornings when you listen to all the birds singing, don't you, in the trees? Yeah. And uh, you hear different um, kind of speeds and different pitches and you can identify which birds they are. Mm. And in some uh, bird world, uh, they actually talk to each other very clearly mm. and they communicate with one another. So clearly they are communities in themselves as well. And when you watch some of the amazing documentaries on birds, you see how different they are and how they behave with one another and how they get on with one another as well so it's so fascinating mm. so this idea about they actually have some sort of understanding to interact so they're slightly more of a higher being in a way not like human beings but mm. they have some intellect that they can understand it was taught in this verse over 1400 years ago yeah. and and they knew of it then but we didn't have that kind of idea did we no we didn't we didn't have that idea of course um but with the time of course humans are learning how they communicate mm. and then they're um i forgot the a very famous person who yeah. makes documentaries of animals uh, yeah well, it's david attenborough who D- david to, attenborough yeah, right many well, yes yeah. many others as well but yeah. his documentaries are really really interesting mm. uh, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadi muslim community also mentioned about mm. his documentaries that it's fascinating how he how animals they you know they communicate and how their lives is of course it's the way God Almighty has created them. So they're not just just here for nothing. So they're they're, they're here for the purpose for um, and and it benefits uh, us as well, um, you know, humans. Mm. But it also benefits other animals. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they all have a role to play, don't yeah. they? I mean, even all insects around the world. Um, irrespective of what their role is, they they are there to feed also humans if they're done properly, which we'll go into more detail. But there are other insects that then eat all the foliage, all the stuff that falls off the tree. Where does it all go? Obviously it decomposes, but there are uh, insects that are doing the job for us. If we hmm. didn't have those with us, the world would have been inundated and not able to live with all of the foliage that is around yeah. so that th- everything has a purpose everything mm. has a reason and when you hear stories of some animals that are house pets for example mm. they really do help companionship those who are on their own they have someone to talk to someone to nurture who exactly. are. and this day and age today we see so many families who d- when they get in um who don't have large families and then their families move away and then when the parents get older 
they tend to be on their own. So they need mm. to have some sort of companion. So everything in this world, when you think about this word about they are communities like you, they are. It's a wonderful phrase. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. I mean, um, the RSPCA, mm. uh, a British welfare organization, said that having left the EU, the UK is free to uh, unilaterally advance animal welfare standards. Initially, post-Brexit, a deal was sought to only import meat that was from places that had high animal welfare standards. However, this has now changed to countries considering animal welfare, and now many are concerned about the watering down of standards. I mean, that's really worrying when you think about it, because Mm. one of the advantages of the United Kingdom at the time being uh, part of the European Union the way it was, um, was that our standards, not just in the food consumption and the way it's prepared and and given to us to eat, um, was at a very high standard, which Mm. we know that the more you process meat, the less of the quality it becomes. So being more at the source meant that the quality of the food that we were eating was better for us. But actually now, um, only dealing with countries that are actually considering to improve the welfare of animals um, is, is a step down. Rather than for us to be able to increase our standards, yeah. we have, have gone a step back. And there's a, a, a lot of people who are not happy. So, I mean, it's quite a lot we've kind of covered in this introduction. Mm. So I guess, you know, we you know we would, I guess, like you guys to just come in and, and contribute to the conversation as well. And one thing I did forget to mention exactly at, at the beginning was that for our second hour, we're actually asking people to contribute to that and then our Instagram question, where we're asking um, for people to share their tips for keeping cool in the summer, right? Mm. So how do you do it? So I'd be very interesting to learn about that. So exactly what is then the animal welfare? You know, why is it so important? Mm. Um, uh, but Hanif, the animal welfare is a concept relevant in any context where the freedoms of animals are limited uh, for human benefit, whether for entertainment, food or research. Uh, the purpose of animal welfare regulations and standards is to set a baseline of, of um, proper treatment that aims to reduce or eliminate unnecessary sufferings at human hands. While historically focused on physical conditions, the modern concept of animal welfare also um, increasingly considers animals' uh, uh, physiological and emotional states. Um, We'll be um, uh, speaking more in detail about the animal welfare, but uh, before that, uh, we will be going through our first um, guest. guest. Um, So we've got David Bowles, who is joining us today, and he's the head of public affairs for the RSPCA, which you mentioned earlier. And it's uh, excellent to be able to speak with David um, on this subject because of his, um, obviously his title, which is absolutely fantastic, and obviously his knowledge as well. So, David, welcome to the Drive Time Show, and thank you for joining us. Good to be with you, and thank you for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Um, could you, I mean, we've got done quite a long introduction to the subjects, but would you be able to define what high animal welfare standards are? What, what, what does that actually mean, actually, when we practically think about it? Yeah, sure. So, um, as your, your guest said, um, 
looking at the welfare of an animal, if prolific, whether that could be in farming or in uh, then uh, high animal welfare standards means that we're giving the more of its welfare needs, but the need to move about, the need to have social company, if appropriate, uh, the need to have good food. We're giving it more of that than just the basics. So that, that really is what higher animal welfare means. And the RSPCA has, has standards which it uses in its assurance scheme, RSPCA Assured, which, uh, under which all the animals farmed under that scheme have those higher standards. So it's, it's really the level that we keep uh, the animals, how we feed them, the space we give them, the environment we give them, the, the number of social environment that we give them. That's all encompassed in those standards. Um, um, it's, it's a career here, David. Um, what is the difference between animal welfare and animal rights? Because it's, so, it, it, it right might sound the same for the, some The animal has, uh, has rights to do things. The, the RSPCA is an animal welfare organization who experience um, all their welfare needs being... Yeah, uh, uh, David, you're, you're cutting out... Their welfare needs... Uh, but we don't we don't go further. So, for instance, the RSPCA is not a vegetarian organisation. Animal animal rights would mean that you don't uh, that you don't use animals at all. You don't eat them. Maybe you don't even keep them as pets. Whereas the RSPCA has a pragmatic approach um, with welfare, which means that yes, you are allowed to use and keep and even eat animals, but you have to do it to the highest standards. Yeah, interesting. So, David, you're cutting out very, very slightly in some of your answers. What we might do is probably try and connect you again straight away, if that's okay, because we really want to hear everything you're saying to us. Um, so is that all right? So what we'll do, we're just going to call you back straight away so we can understand exactly what you're saying 100%. Okay, that's cool. So if we can just um, do that. So it's really interesting what David was saying about the difference between animal welfare and animal rights because mm. we when we speak to many people who are vegetarian they they want to give all the rights they can to uh, particular animals as well but mm-hmm. obviously what we're talking about is the welfare of animals that they are grazed properly they don't live in cages their mental state in a way is, is, is really good yeah okay let, let's see if david's back with us now david are you, are you with us again now yeah, yeah, I can hear you fine. Uh, yeah. As I was explaining, the, yes. the RSPCA is an animal welfare organisation, yeah. so therefore we, we're not against using animals or uh, eating animals or indeed keeping animals as pets, uh, but we believe that when you're doing that, you should keep them to the highest animal welfare standards. Mm. So uh, animal rights people believe that you shouldn't eat animals or maybe even you shouldn't keep them as pets. The RSPCA uh, doesn't hold that view, but we believe that if you're doing that, you need to give them the highest standards that you can. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up for us. And, and also, um, as you know, in May 2021, the government's website stated that now that we've left the EU and the UK has new freedom for to further strengthen animal welfare standards and reinforce its position as a global champion of animal rights, the government will also ensure that animal welfare is not compromised in all of our future trade negotiations. Up to what extent were they able to fulfil this claim? Well, the, the RSPCA doesn't believe they have fulfilled yeah. this claim. And indeed, today, um, the House of Parliament are discussing the Australian deal, which allows in uh, reduced to lower standards in the UK. Hmm. And they are a clear trade strategy. And B, in that trade strategy, set out clearly that you will only import 
food or other products which have been produced to our standards. Otherwise, you will have a race to the bottom. So the RSPCA is really worried that in the first deal the UK has done with Australia, they didn't match up to those standards. Mm. And we will be watching them with further deals that they're doing with places like Mexico, Canada and India. Yeah, I mean, it's really worrying, isn't it, that we're having to do a deal with a country that is halfway around the world where we're still unable to do a deal with our own uh, neighbours uh, just across the channel and what we've, the only way we're able to do these deals is if we lower the standards which is not ideal for us, for our children, for the food that we want to eat as well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, so the ironically the deal that we've done with the EU is um, bringing in free trade at standards which are equivalent to ours and both those countries also agreed that that if they're going to raise their standards, um, that each each country would do that. So, so the RSPCA believes that the deal that the UK has signed with the EU is actually quite a good template. Um, and we would hope that they would do a similar deal with, as you say, countries like Australia, which is halfway around the world, or countries like Canada, India, or Mexico. They don't show any signs of doing that, which is a worry just for the RSPCA and for animal welfare, but it's all standards than other countries, but could be disadvantaged if we allow in products to lower standards. Mm, fantastic. Well, David, really appreciate your uh, time today. It's been fascinating listening to you, and I think we managed to get at least nearly everything that you were trying to get across, and thanks for bearing with us, and uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. Yeah, I look, look forward to it. Thanks for yeah, having me well, on. You're Bye. welcome, David. Thank you very much. So that was really interesting, you know, that the point that you raised... And the question that we asked about the standards of the, um, I guess we're talking about here, the standard of quality of meat, hmm. really, aren't we, that we're going to be eating here? And then the question that I kind of alluded to about what about our trading partners? And we've had to go all the way to Australia, other side of the world, and get some uh, meat coming in that is of a lower standard so what are we doing to our population i mean are we okay about eating meat that's not not to the standard that we had from our partners just across the channel yeah i mean definitely uh, if you get you know me from all the way from australia uh, that's definitely gonna not gonna be uh, a good standard of course um but yeah i mean uh, in the neighboring countries we have to lower our standards of course to uh, uh I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we've done. That's what the government is doing, is lowering its standards so it can negotiate a deal. Yeah. Right. But that's not what people, I imagine, decided that's what they wanted Mm. was to when we uh, leave the EU, yes, to get deals, yes, to get some investment in, et cetera, and to negotiate deals, but not then to lower our standards. Right. Yeah. So and that's what um, David is on about. There's an imminent deal coming in from Canada and also coming in from India as well. Let's see. Let's let's watch this space. Hmm. Okay. I mean, you you were talking about... um, earlier just before we spoke to Dave about you know what is the animal welfare and and why it's so important so why don't you carry on Mm. um, with that because we never really got to the end of what you wanted to say Mm. yeah so you know as you know that humans Mm. employ many animals for their own use and even eat the the meat uh, for the benefit as we are were discussing before and um, in Islam uh, Muslims have been urged to treat all animals with the of course, great kindness and compassion. So, although we do um, eat meat, but the the treatment to animals should be, uh, you know, very good. It shouldn't. We shouldn't treat animals like 
uh, bad and in, in, in they shouldn't be in a state uh, in suffering. For instance, animals used for riding or plowing the fields must not be overworked or pushed beyond their normal limits of endurance. Uh, similarly, animals that make up the human diet should be killed or slaughtered in the most human manner, humane manner. And this is what Islam teaches us that, you know, if you if animals are used for the benefit of humans, then we should treat the animals very well, uh, not overburden them. And also, if we um, slaughter them for, uh, for for eating, then we should do it in the most humane manner. Mm. Yeah, and then the Holy Quran explains, and also through the sayings and doings of our beloved Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who, who showed us and gave us many examples yes. as to as to how this should be done and how um, it's important that we you know, get that process done, especially during the slaughter, if that's going to be used for our diet. So mm. it's really important mm-hmm. and if they graze properly. I mean, when, when we start looking at the standards, the post-Brexit food standards, and we've already touched upon this as well, that also this has been quite a hot topic in the EU, especially with the UK insisting that Brexit will give new freedom to boost standards. And this is what we were talking about with David Bowles, uh, the head of the public affairs of the RSPC, mm. who was saying that actually he's not happy to the extent that the government is... It, the stance it's taken, it's saying it's not really been doing um, a brilliant job and it has lowered its standards. And when you then look at a recent article from The Guardian and it claims that animal welfare campaigners, for f- food policy experts and farmers have reacted with fury, right, mm. absolute fury, that after the government watered down the post-Brexit deal, standard in its food strategy, and it was only released, I think, yesterday, and I think also mm. he said they're debating it today uh, in the House of Commons as well. And this, uh, in a version of the strategy, and they say it was leaked by The Guardian on Friday, the government committed to making it easier for countries to import goods if they have high animal welfare standards. And the draft reads, um, we'll seek animal welfare linked uh, liberalisation in our free trade agreements, allowing us to offer more generous liberalisation of products certified as meeting certain key animal welfare criteria specified in agreement. But basically what it's saying is that it's reduced its standards and and the Guardian has claimed that um, this um, is what's happening Mm -hmm. and they're not happening. Um, Obviously, there's a, a quote here from Caroline Lucas, who's the Green MP for Brighton, and she said that this looks like yet another shameful squandered opportunity to cement stringent animal welfare protection into our free trade agreements and we need a full explanation from the government as to why this element was removed and who's uh, on whose demand so because the farmers are, are, are very disappointed with this watering down of the trade um, section and it puts English producers at a disadvantage. And that's the key thing there. Is that mm. Now, our own farmers are having to keep up high quality standards, but actually standards of meat that's been imported um, is less of a standard. Yeah. So it puts them um, at a risk as, as well. Mm. So we'll talk about this a, a little bit more, but what we're going to do is talk to our next guest as well, who's who's on hold. Yes, um, so we have um, Heather Beacon um, on hold, who is the head of the veterinary, veterinary medicine 
at the University of Central uh, Lancashire. Um, peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for being with us here. Um, Dr. Heather, what inspired you to become a uh, veterinarian? Um, I wanted to be a vet from quite a young age. I grew up um, surrounded by nature. I've always been interested in the natural world and animal biology and how animals work and interact with the the natural world. So for me, um, becoming a vet and wanting to uh, help animals really was was sort of a natural progression. Hmm. But then throughout my career, I've um, become really engaged with education. And I think the thing that's kept me in the profession is uh, the people that I've met and learning about other people and um, the importance of animals in people's lives. Hmm. Uh, we often read about how reducing uh, uh, eating meat can help the environment. Can reducing meat consumption actually improve the animal welfare as well? Um, and if it's yes, how does that do so? Sure. Um, well, of course, um, the the fewer consumers that buy and consume meat, the fewer animals uh, that will be slaughtered for for meat. And hmm. um, so that reduces the demand on the system. But it doesn't necessarily reduce the um, the the way in which those animals are, you know, it doesn't improve the way in which those animals are housed or um, improve um, slaughter methods, for example. So another thing that people can do is to buy better quality meat or higher welfare items. Mm -hmm. So um, meat or other animal products such as eggs or dairy that are um, accredited or approved by um, high uh, welfare standards um, schemes, so farm assurance schemes, such as the RSPCA Freedom Food Scheme or the Soil Association Schemes. Mm. And so there are different ways in which consumers can improve um, animal welfare by either making better choices or potentially by by reducing their their intake as well. Mm. Excellent. Really appreciate that, um, Dr. Heather. Can I ask a question, just changing tack slightly, uh, because we're discussing about meat standards and animal welfare. Um, And from the welfare perspective, and from a scientific point of view, what would be the most humane or the most painless way of slaughtering an animal? So slaughter methods do vary between Mm. species, but the thing that's really important for animal welfare is the time from the sort of initial cut or the initial injuries made through to unconsciousness. Because as soon as we cut or, or, or inflict an injury on an animal um, and then it becomes unconscious um, that is, is the animal still able to experience that, that situation so we want to really reduce that time and that's why um, in many cases we will stun animals prior to slaughter now uh, stunning is a recoverable, recoverable event and it doesn't cause any permanent damage to the animals but what it does do is induce a state of temporary unconsciousness that means that when their throats are cut, uh, they are not um, aware of that happening. Um, and that means that their experience of death is much better from mm. a welfare point of view. Yeah. So that's generally how, how we would um, look to, to improve welfare, would be 
to reduce that period of time right. before they come unconscious. Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned about stunning, and you know most of the world when in abattoirs as well, they don't always have the opportunity to to stun, as, mm-hmm. as you're saying. But what mm-hmm. they do do is cut the jugular. So the, um, mm. the, the relationship between the body and the brain, they automatically become unconscious, so they don't feel the pain. Is that something that's been well, practiced over the bit, years? <laughs> It does depend on the species. Sure, so that's the point I was going to make, yeah, yeah because you and mentioned it, about it depending on the different type of species. Yeah, so in ruminant animals such as goats or sheep or cattle, mm. they actually have additional arteries that run up through their spine at the back of the neck. And so cutting the throat does not uh, sever those arteries. And so those arteries continue to take blood to the brain mm. and consciousness uh, can be retained for several minutes, uh, in particularly in ruminant so that can sometimes be problematic from a welfare perspective and and stunning what what does that do then does that just automatically stop all blood flow to the brain then does it it doesn't stop blood flow but what it does is it sends a strong electrical impulse through the body and that confuses the brain activity um, and it means the brain is unable to process any physical sensations so it means the animal becomes unconscious and the brain is unable to process that physical sensation of um, of the slaughter, um, and and then so the animal doesn't experience um, that that slaughter experience. Okay, all right. So we'll we'll move, we'll move on from that because you know many vegan pet, uh, some vegan pet owners they don't just want to give up animal products. Um, they want their pets as well. So can cats and dogs, for instance, really go through meat free? Um, It's a really interesting question, and obviously veganism is uh, increasing and is increasingly popular amongst people. Um, And to be honest, the the sort of short answer is that the jury is out. We definitely know, for example, that our cats are what we call obligate carnivores. Um, They need uh, an amino acid, a a small protein-building block called taurine, in their diets. And the only natural source of taurine is through meat and meat products. However, you can get synthetic taurine that can be added to vegan pet foods. What we don't know is um, in the long term as to whether that type of taurine is is as effective as the sort of more natural meat-based sources. Hmm. In terms of our dogs, um, they're a a bit different because they're omnivorous. They can eat plant-based and um, meat-based diets. Um, But again, regardless of the type of diet that you feed, your pet, what we would recommend as veterinarians, is that it's nutritionally balanced uh, and has been approved and and formulated by a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Now, even um, some kind of commercial diets are sort of accidentally vegan. So if you have an animal that has allergies, for example, some types of um, hypoallergenic diets are are actually vegan um, to reduce that allergenic load. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they are um, nutritionally formulated for that particular dog or that particular cat so that's the most important thing really rather than it being a vegan or a meat-based diet is that it is nutritionally balanced yeah Um, this is a an an off-the-cuff type question is that some some food that's given to cats has catnip in it this is what i heard i mean i i like to know if you know this or, or or if it's true or not true um, I am not aware of any, yeah. but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, certainly, um, the response to catnip is really interesting. That's actually, um, we think, a, a genetic uh, response to it. Some cats respond to it and really enjoy it, and other cats have no response to it at all. Yeah. So 
um, yeah, that can be a, a slightly individual response that, that cats have to it. Interesting. So I'd love to talk to you a lot more uh, about this subject, but obviously time is always pressing on a live show. So um, we'd love to have you back and follow on our discussion when we pick this up again. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Heather. Thank you for having me. Have a good evening. I will do. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Uh, That was quite interesting, wasn't it, that that whole topic uh, um, and that conversation we had with Dr. Heather. Um, I found it really uh, interesting. So Mm. what, what about that then that conversation um, that we're having about this issue of you know vegans and pet owners do, do, do you think do you quite find it quite interesting or yeah it's quite interesting i mean uh, uh the, the topic with vegan and i mean everyone has their own choice of course um mm. in islam it is not really it's it's not forced on you that you have to eat meat uh, in fact, the the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings Allah be upon him, uh, he consumed very less meat. Um, so you should have a balanced diet, of course. But then he also explained us that the animals that we keep for uh, slaughtering mm. or for our own use, it should be treated very, very well. Um, so they don't go through any any pain or any suffering yeah. uh, because that also has an effect. So if any animal that we keep uh, for slaughtering is in a very bad you know s- status mm. uh it's it's got an effect on the brain as well yeah. and this when we consume that um we will have those type of effects as well mm. in our body you know similarly with chicken as well uh, the amount of chicken that we uh, th- that consume mm. all the, the 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 normal shops need it's yeah. it's amazing i mean uh, I was watching a documentary mm. uh, a few months back, and they're saying that it's of course the the the, the chicks they 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 don't, they don't even have space to stand. They're literally on uh, on top of each other, yeah. so it's uh and and it's the demand that they have right because there's no other option. Mm. So because yeah, I mean, of we the demand, overeat meat, don't we? We overeat Where meat, and literally much. every street has a, a chicken shop. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any chicken shops, but consume too much yeah, meat. Yeah, we've always discussed about this issue about the consumption of meat is that yeah. it needs to be done in moderation. But yeah. at the end of the day, every food that we eat needs to be done in moderation because mm. there's a balance, isn't there? If you eat too much meat, uh, it can affect you one way. If you don't eat meat at all, you need the nutrients and the proteins, and has effect on your well-being as well so yeah. there are many people who are vegetarians as well but not saying that that's the only way that you can consume your your food but mm. that's the point of another discussion on another day mm. but what we wanted to do is talk more about the animal welfare and 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 we mentioned earlier that the kind of modern concepts of animal welfare also are being considered like you mentioned earlier about the psychological and emotional state as well Hmm. and there was this paper that was published in 1994 that expanded on five freedoms to place more importance on animals and this was around the mental state the acknowledgement the role that physical factors play in shaping animals experiences and the five kind of domains outlined in the paper places emphasis on the emotional well-being and the importance of environments and practices that can enable like a positive experience rather than simply an abuse of negatives it's exactly like what you were saying Mm. earlier and and when you uh, mentioned about a beloved holy prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him and the domains theory of animal well 
welfare expands into five freedoms. And, and these are down to nutritional, environment, health, behavior, and mental state. And um, so I think it's important that we, you know, kind of understand these a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, these five, um, uh, you know, animal welfare domains are uh, important. The first one um, is nutrition, of course. Animals um, should be given opportunities to consume sufficient food and water and their diets should be nutritionally balanced and varied. Um, The second one is environment. Um, the environment where animals are housed should be predictable and comfortable in terms of adequate heat, mm. sufficient space, uh, the, uh, the availability of fresh air and sufficient light expo- exposure and social interaction. Um, the third one is, uh, of course, the health of the animal. The conditions of captivity should allow animals to experience a little to no injury or disease. And animals should be able to attain a decent physical fitness level. Overall, their body condition should be similar to what they would experience in the world, in, in, uh, in the wilderness. Um, the fourth one is, of course, the behavior. Um, Arguably, one of the biggest contribution contribution to the domain's theory of animal welfare lies in the uh, definition of agency belonging to animals and the various ways they should be allowed to exercise control over their own actions. Uh, the paper suggests that animals should be able to engage in uh, exploration, bonding, foraging and hunting, playing, etc., etc., and 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 the last one is uh, the mental state yeah. of the animal uh, you know like i was discussing and you were saying as well that the mental life of an animal uh, should feature positive states yeah. um including pleasure derives from the uh, satiation um of thirst and hunger physical comfort arising from the exercise and olfactory uh, stimulation mm-hmm. and the experience of novelty affection and um other gratifications of course yeah i mean a lot, lot of animals when you're patting them and you're giving them some food and yeah. all that gratification you build a bond don't you and they mm. uh, and they actually feel very comfortable in that environment don't mm. they? And, and they get used to the person that actually giving them the food and patting them and especially when we um when human beings groom their animals for example when yeah. we're grooming the um the horses or or you're grooming your cats and all these things and how you're making them feel more comfortable and then you're feeding them as well so that relationship is very good it's very especially good, yeah. for, a men- for yeah. their mental state i mean i mean the if if the person taking care of the animal if he's grooming if he's taking care of all the animals equally uh then uh, of course that's a uh, that's in that state of course the animals are considered to be um you know in a good standard of course and yeah. then when when that meat is consumed it has a good uh effect on the on on us as well of course yeah i mean it, <coughs> when we now start talking about um it's islam in itself and the way it has guided uh, humans um and their relationship um and it talks about the animal welfare and slaughtering yeah i mean it it does say that all animals are part of god's creation so muslims yep. have a duty of care to animals and animals have been given 
been given rights and mm. this is what we've been talking about mm. and if a muslim treats an animal with love and tenderness he will be blessed by god so it's a very clear instruction there that we should be treating animals with a lot of love tender and you there's blessings in there as well so it's it, the choice is for us to receive the blessings of god to actually consider being showing love and tenderness uh, to animals mm. um, because they are at the end of the day uh, creations of god and we as muslims have a duty of care towards animals mm. and in the quran it acknowledges that many animals are of benefit to mankind for like transports and for other requirements and he has created horses and mules and asses that you may ride them and in chapter 16 verse 9 humans also need meat as part of their diet but even here we are taught how to slaughter animals in a humane way such as that they are killed instantly through a single cut yeah. i mean it's a you have to understand that every animal they eventually have to be you know we have to slaughter them by cutting uh, the jugular vein and by cutting the because otherwise what will happen is just by stunning you know, the blood will stay. And if you don't cut it properly whilst the blood is flowing, yeah. right? It's, 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 you know, it's, it's better to cut it when the blood is flowing so that the blood gushes out and it drains the whole blood because that, that's usually what they in, in the UK and other countries do yeah. as well, um, that they do cut the jugular vein afterwards and then and they let it hang so all the blood flows out. out yeah. So eventually we need to cut the throat or cut the jugular vein in order to get rid of the uh, the blood because you know as you know that blood is not something which is permissible in Islam but it also is not you know it's it's very harmful for our health as well if you you know eat meat with blood of course so um and and when animals are slaughtered it must be uh conducted in the most most eth ethical and least painful way yeah. and this is what Islam does as well and I think uh, you may have heard of the the word um, kosher, right? It's kosher, yeah. kosher is you know the way uh, Jews they cut the the meat as mm. well, and the way they do it, uh, except saying the words you know in the name of Allah, Bismillah, right? Uh, other ways, it, the the way they do it is one of the most humane way as well mm. because mm. they they make sure that the the knife that they're using is extremely sharp mm. they use also cut it uh, uh, where you know it's the quickest way to mm. cut um, and and the, the easiest and the more uh, the, uh, the most um what's it called the uh, the less painful way yeah. basically yeah yeah so the quickest and the swiftest way swiftest way yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah exactly right and um, animals which are kind of injected with steroids you mentioned it earlier when you talked about uh, sort of like when we see chickens bigger <laughs> than what I expect them to be you know? yeah. so, but anyway there is this issue that animals which are injected with steroids and um, hormones to make them even bigger um, it's that there is absolutely condemned in Islam, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you cannot do that to an animal to inject it with something to make it bigger because we need to. We need more of that meat. It's just <laughs> mind-boggling as to why we would do it, and Islam completely forbids that. Of course, of course. Um, f uh, for our th this hour, we have um, uh, our last guest, yep. um, Tariq Azim, who is a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, he's serving in, in Jamaica. 
Um, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to uh, Voice of Islam. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu, and jazakallah, uh, thank you so much for having me. Jazakallah for, um, for coming on. Um, uh, Imam Tariq, the animal welfare is uh, an in- integral part of the Islamic way of slaughtering. Um, yet many people object to it and even refuse to eat any meat uh, that is halal certificate, uh, certified. Uh, why do you think um, uh, this is? Um, you know, the method in Islam proposed for slaughtering, taught for slaughtering an animal. Um, when you study it, it, it is actually the most humane and most compassionate way of slaughtering an animal when you compare it with other practices around the world, such as in factory farming and other cultural practices. Mm-hmm. The emphasis that the Holy Quran and the founder of Islam, Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah upon him, have put uh, on, on the method, uh, you realize that uh, you know uh, so much care needs to be taken to make sure that no unnecessary pain is given to the animal that is being slaughtered. Mm-hmm. So when you read those things, you realize how actually, you know, Islam puts emphasis on, on, on um, you can say, the care for the animal before and during the slaughter. There is one tradition of Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. He says that um, there is no man who kills a sparrow or anything beyond that without it's deserving it, but God will ask him about it. Mm-hmm. So Islam even says that you cannot hunt or kill animals just for the fun of it or as a sport, but rather if it is done for the purpose that you are going to consume the meat because it has certain benefits in it, for that reason if you do it, it is okay. But if you do it for any other reason, you cause an injury or you hurt or you kill an animal, you will be questioned about it. Mm. Then, you know, in another tradition of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, we learn, he says, Islam enjoins goodness in everything so he says when you hunt or kill an animal do it in a good manner when Mm -hmm. you slaughter an animal do it in a good manner so the care he basically he says the care always needs to be there when you're doing anything in regards to the to to slaughtering an animal to killing or hunting all this process he goes on further in the same tradition to explain he says before you slaughter the animal Make sure you sharpen the knife. There should be no blemish on it, meaning it should be extremely sharp so that when you start to slaughter, the cutting is done immediately. Mm. Immediately, as soon, and and it should be as swift as possible. And then, you know, he doesn't just stop there. He explains uh, more in other traditions as well. He says that when you are slaughtering an animal, and before that you are sharpening the knife, make sure you don't do it in front of the animal. Because by doing this, you're inflicting two deaths upon that animal. One, when you're going to slaughter it. And second, by instilling fear in that animal when you're sharpening that knife right in front of the animal. Hmm. Then another place he says that you should not, um, you know, um, uh, slaughter the animal in front of other animals. So, you know, when you read these traditions, you see there are so many guidelines. I've just shared a few. There are so many guidelines that emphasize that how Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and Islam in general recognizes that animals need to be consumed for, for their benefits that they have for humans. But while doing so, 
we must show utmost care towards the animal. Hmm. The, the, you know, the measures that I have just mentioned that Islam proposes for slaughtering, this is one reason for this is that, Islam, uh, that uh, the animal feels the least pain when it is going through that process of slaughtering. But then there's another reason as well. Islam forbids the consumption of blood. So this particular method, it basically uh, allows for the maximum blood to go out of the body of the animal. So this is another reason. Both reasons are there. That one, that the, it is swift, it is easy, it is more comfortable for the, for the animal in comparison to the other method. But then it also has health benefit for those who are going to consume it. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to the question that why do some people object to it? I, you know, just as I've explained, it, it has to be out of ignorance because if one understands how humane and merciful Islamic method is, in comparison to factory farming and other practices that we see around the world, um, I mean, they would realize that they would, if they learn those things, they would realize that this is actually a, a much more uh, considerate manner. Mm-hmm. So again, I mean, as, as, as I've highlighted from the references I shared, it is of the utmost importance in Islamic, you know, the care for the animal is the utmost important, mm-hmm. all the while not compromising the health standard of the meat that is going to be con- consumed by human. I mean, th- there are people who, um, I mean, apart from eating, we use it for for riding or uh, for other uh, purposes as well. And one of the uh, purpose animals, that, you know, animals are also used for scientific experiments as well. Is that something which is allowed in Islam? Uh, Islam recognizes that humans have always depended on animals for their survival. This but then, therefore, it allows the use of animals for science as well. There's a verse in the Holy Quran in chapter 45 where God says that, and God has subjected, he has subjected to you whatsoever is in the heavens and whatsoever is in the earth. All this is from him. So this verse indicates that uh, humans have been placed in the highest order of living species. And they are allowed to benefit from the species lower in the order, as long as it is justified. So mm. if, as I said, the purpose of scientific experiments is to benefit mankind, benefit humanity, it can be used, but it should be done with extreme caution, as you know, the same rules that apply for slaughtering, um, you know, where we take that care into consideration that we don't cause unnecessary pain to the animals. The same thing should be considered in this. Any form of cruelty, or unnecessary waste or pain towards the animal, that that would not be an Islamic, uh, you know, Islam would not allow that. But otherwise, generally for human uh, benefit of humanity, it is permissible. Um, Madam Bissab, could I just ask a follow-up question on that as well? When we talk about, yes, 100%, you know, the benefits of humanity for a humane way, but many animals are tested on not only just for science like to help cure diseases like cancer etc but also um, there are other things it's tested on say for paint for makeup etc that uh, ladies wear is, is that permissible in a way well we need to make sure that we're not causing unnecessary pain yeah. to the animals yeah. right if something is not uh, necessary to mankind and it does not benefit mankind then perhaps we should reconsider this. If we are doing it something for our pleasure, our own, 
benefit that in the sense which is not essential to mankind then if you're inflicting pain upon animals yeah. then i don't think it can be justified yeah and and there are many humane ways which things are done now even in this in in this modern world where they recognize that so there are many products that are produced and manufactured which have not created any sort of mis uh, discomfort to animals, etc. So, uh, just that was a follow-up question from there, just to Absolutely. clarify. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask um, a question about vegetarianism and veganism, and these are both on the rise, especially in the West. And the main reason for that is that it's down to the human rights of the animals and the health environments. Uh, does Islam encourage a balanced diet in which includes both vegetarian and meat? And is it acceptable for Muslims to become vegan or vegetarians? And that by saying they are just not going to eat meat anymore. Um, as you mentioned uh, throughout your program today, mm. actually, that Islam promotes a balanced diet, right? eating anything in excess or avoiding completely something that has benefit for you it will have consequences, right? So abstaining from meat completely will have its challenges, just like if you are to consume too much meat. The founder of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, peace and blessings of God be upon him, in his book, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, he talks about this topic. He says that, and he gives the example of meat in there. You know, he, he says that whatever we eat, it has an impact on our body. And not just on our body, but on our mind, our soul, mm. our b entire being, our character even, is affected by what we eat. As the saying goes, you are what you eat. So he reiterates that. He says yeah. that this is whatever you consume, it has an impact on you. And he mm. gives the example of meat, that if someone is to consume meat all the time, this will lead to aggression, aggressive behavior in him. Yeah. It may lead to aggressive behavior. Yeah. And if someone does not, you know, abstains from meat entirely, it it has the potential of leading a person to timid behavior. Yeah. So therefore, you know, he, he says that the right approach would be to have a balanced diet where you take both, you know, vegetables as well as meat in, in a proper quantity, yeah. and then it would not cause harm. Okay. So right. now the Muslims who are leaning toward the trend of veganism, Islam does not support this trend. If someone, you know, out of their personal likeness or preference, stay away from meat or any particular food, that is up to them. But as a principle, it cannot be adopted. Okay. There are many that accept Islam, but then, you know, that have, that have practiced veganism all their life or mm. vegetarianism. Mm. So you cannot ex uh, expect them to change their diet sure. overnight when they become Muslim. A follow-up kind of question from speaking with Dr. Heather Bacon, who discussed with us about stunning the animals uh, was probably either more humane than just um, cutting the throat to the, the jugular that goes to the brain. And she explained that there are other uh, vessels that go to the brain. But the kind of question that I wanted to follow up was, was that ultimately we have to drain the blood anyway. So my question to you is that is stunning an animal before slaughtering permissible in Islam? Um, as I was explaining, yeah. that there are different schools of thought on this. Yeah. And in Islam, any animal that is dead uh, through an injury or dies before the actual process of slaughtering is not permissible to be consumed. Correct. But in some situations, 
stunning is done, one, to facilitate, to speed up the process of slaughtering. And secondly, they don't kill the animal. They just make it unconscious. And sometimes that can be better. Sometimes it can be better because an animal which is difficult to control, especially larger animals, mm. um, then in those cases, if the animal is stunned unconscious, not dead, in that case, it might make it easier and less painful, not because they're unconscious, but more so because they're, they're less likely, they're more you know, controllable, manageable. Yes. Okay. That's why it can be easier. Hmm. So in that case, stunning may be utilized. But then again, I mean, uh, the method that Islam has proposed, if the right care is taken, then there would be no issues. Right. You know, uh, I was mentioning that His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him, who was the fourth Khalifa or the successor of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, when he was asked this question, particularly in regards to killing the animal through stunning, he said that, you know, this method is sometimes proposed thinking that this causes less pain to the animal. And he said that I have studied this. I have studied the, the process of slaughtering and also the sciences that go behind it. And he says that there is no evidence to prove that the stunning causes less pain. Right? He says that when, when the jugular vein, when the artery is severed uh, through a very quick and the swift cut and while slaughtering, um, the, the connection between the brain and the body is severed. And when you see the body of the animal still riling up or you know, moving about and shaking, it's the natural reflexes of the body that is taking place. But then again, so this is in regards to when you compare it with stunning to kill. Yep. But when it comes to stunning to make it unconscious, in one of his books, uh, His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmad, he has said that some people ask me if the modern style of slaughtering is Islamic, which is first stunning the animal and then slaughtering. In answer, I say that it is not un-Islamic. Mm -hmm. So again, I mean, this is, this is a very clear um, indication and answer. Yeah. Uh, from um, one of our revered, uh, you know, Khalifas, yep. and uh, that ex gives a very clear explanation on this topic. That's fantastic. I really appreciate um, you hanging on and answering this question. Um, Tariq Azim Murabisab from Jamaica, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And just in that, we'll take an extremely short break. Here's the news. Thank you very much for listening. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show and thank you for staying with us. We're in the second hour now of our wonderful Drive Time Show that we're talking about. And actually what we're talking about today is heat waves. What's happening with our weather system? What's going on? Why are we experiencing all these weather systems that are just so hot that we can't cope with? Or actually, we're loving it because, you know, we don't always get the opportunity to enjoy that beautiful sunshine here, especially where you are. So, um, in this in this second hour, we are talking about heat waves. You know, what is an extended period of hot weather relative to the expected conditions of the area of that time, which you may 
understand it to be so why is it sometimes in the winter season we think wow this is a bit hot or we're approaching you know the summertime and before then we've had this massive seven days of heat wave and why is that so that's kind of what we're we're, we're discussing today and obviously if um you really enjoy some of the conversations that are happening and you want to take part by all means do so and give us a call on 0208-687-7878 and you can get in touch with us through the normal uh, social media platforms on twitter instagram and tiktok you name them and our handle will be at voice of islam uk and we are also asking a question on our instagram page as well so we'll share many of those out so share your tips for keeping cool in the summer so okay just before we get into this have you got any tips yourself that you would use to keep yourself cool um yeah uh, the tips uh wear comfortable clothes actually yeah yeah, yeah. loose clothes <laughs> uh, loose clothes, yeah. loose clothes uh, it's not necessary to wear ne- less clothes yeah. but the, the the material of the clothes yeah. uh, it does uh, have an effect of yeah. course i mean uh, I, i've seen people walking around with these that they're, they're like headphones but actually they sit on your shoulder and there's rather than having speakers oh, in yes. them they have fans in them I've and seen you just that, rest yeah. them on the shoulder such a that's a nice invention <laughs> yeah. actually i've seen it yeah it looks like a headphone but instead of wearing it on your head you wear it on your neck yeah. and 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 the wind comes straight to your face yeah. <laughs> I, I, th- i think they're brilliant and that's some a, of them have some nice flashy colors as well oh, so yes. uh, so th- there's my tip so by all means share us your tips as well so get onto our instagram and, and give us some ideas as to how you would do it so let's get straight into the subject because we've got lots of stuff to get through uh, we're speaking with some professionals in this manner we've got some audio clips that we would like to play for you as well so really in terms of then an introduction very quickly yes as i mentioned earlier the heat wave is an extended period of hot weather that's relative to an expected condition of that area where you are at the time and most people can understand that as well which may be accompanied by high humidity which means it's too hot for you to handle and how long does it going to take i mean a uk heat wave threshold is met with a location record as a period of at least three consecutive days with daily maximum temperatures so that's kind of an indication as you can work out so when the met office says to you we're going to have a a heat wave it kind of worked out it's going to be for three days and it's mm. going to be maxing out for three days and recent reports have stated that across the world hot days are getting hotter and more frequent while we're experiencing fewer cold days so that's mm. kind of where we're getting to around the world and obviously we're seeing so many more bushfires as well i mean extensive i mean a few years ago we had a proliferation of of bushfires in australia which then affected the weather systems that we experienced over in europe yeah. and so all of that has a massive effect which we're able to to understand and from the latest reports from the intergovernmental panel on climate change states that it is unquivocal that human influence has warmed up the atmosphere ocean and land so that's um, kind of where we want to get to and obviously just um as a, a a 
quote from Sahih Muslim, one of the uh, one of the six authentic books of the sayings of of our beloved Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, and he said that the world is beautiful and verdant, and very Allah be He exalted has made you His stewards in it, and He sees how you acquit yourself. Mm. Yeah, a beautiful hadith yeah. indeed. Um, this hadith tells us that, of course, we are the stewards in it. And it's us to take care of, um, you know, this world, of course. And, yeah. and you gave an example of Australia. And I believe in 2019, we had the Amazon forest uh, uh, burn as well. Yeah. So the, the, uh, we had and, and it was it was for a very long time. And then sure. you know that, you know, most of the oxygen we receive is from the forest in Amazon, isn't it? Right, so this yeah. is basically a, a heart of the earth in regards to, you know, the forest of, of the world, isn't it? Um, so it is up to us mm. to uh, take care of the nature. Um, and, and, and when we take care of the nature, then it will benefit us. And uh, if you mistreat it, of course, then it will affect our um, weather system as well. And, and we see that we are, we're having the heat wave um, and um, also weather changes that we've had previous years during the COVID as well. Uh, in one of, I guess it was in, uh, in, in spring or in summer, I don't know. There were yeah. a few days, suddenly one day it used to be 25 and above yeah. and the next day was two degrees. <laughs> it was, and some of the days even, you know, it snowed as well. Yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> freak, I think we call it freak weather conditions. You're yeah. Right. And, and that's the thing, you know, how do you prepare for it? So this mm. is the biggest common thing when you talk about heat waves and weather conditions, especially in the United Kingdom. When you leave the house, sometimes you leave with a jumper, leave with a T-shirt, leave with a shirt. And in your bag, you've got like three layers in there. And you might even be have an umbrella in there as well. Because yeah. one, you don't know if it's going to rain. And second, you don't know if the sun's going to come out and you want to cover yourself from the heat. So yeah. it's, it's one of those interesting things, especially about what do you wear on the day when you go out in the United Kingdom? That's also like an interesting question you could um, share with us as well. I mean, in the United States, actually, there was an extreme heat is one of the leading causes of weather related deaths, killing an average of more than 600 people a year. I mean, that's shocking, right? That's very shocking. But that's something which is recorded, right? Yeah. Because it's United States is the country, you know, you know that people are dying. And, 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 but there are so many other countries in the world where this is not even recorded and the the numbers are much much higher i guess so and and of course 600 people a year yeah. just because of the heat yeah. is a lot yeah and you wouldn't expect that in america because there's no. buildings full of air conditioning places as well you get out the house you go in your car air conditioned car you get out you go into the shopping center or your workplace you know you are in uh, an air conditioning building so yeah. it, it is shocking that of the, all of those uh, mitigations, you're still having 600 people being killed. Mm. And as Muslims, we must remain modest in our attire, even in hot weather. You know, you asked me this question, and as I also said, yeah. <laughs> that of course we have to, you know, our clothes, uh, they, we should not wear less clothes, but, you know, use our clothes wisely. Um, and the, the material of the clothes, it, that makes a, a big difference as well. Even if you wear short clothes or a T-shirt, but it's, if it's like a, a thick 
um, black or, or dark colored clo- clothing, um, then it might, you know, the heat might, um, you know, get stuck in your clothes and you, f- you might feel hotter um, um, uh, compared to if you wear uh, something bright um, that will reflect in, 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 in the deserts and, and the hotter countries. Yeah. You also see that people, you know, they cover themselves with, with wh- white clothing and uh, they know they've, they've been there for s- several years, right? So they know how to dress. So the God Almighty in uh, chapter 19 explains us and tells us as well how we, um, you know, uh, should treat ourselves in, in regards to our modesty. God Almighty says that, and the true servant of the gracious God are those who walk on the earth humbly. Um, now, um, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah be helper, the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, states in relation to modesty. Um, he says that keep in mind that any limits placed upon you by Islam are a means of guarding your honor and protecting you from everyday risks and exist in society. Um, I mean, because we know that clothing has a big effect on your behavior as well, the behavior around you as well. Mm. Um, So you should, you know, try yourself to be modest, not just women, but also men uh, in any circumstances, as and especially when you have a heat wave or, uh, you know, the weather is hot. So this is what we as, as, you know, Muslims have been taught by God Almighty and um, uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Yeah, excellent. And and you see that, don't you, very very much um, around the world in the dress sense as well, even in the Muslim countries as well, from our African brothers and sisters to yeah. our sisters in Indonesia and and obviously in America and Europe. So there's still modesty is still there. And, and the there's modesty so is still there. They're, they're surviving. I mean... Um, you know, if you look at the Saudi Arabian countries or the the Gulf countries, they're one of the hottest countries in the world. But still, they uh, they have their clothing is modest, um, and and it, it is also something that is protecting them. So, um, of course, this is something that we have to uh, we as Muslims we believe that um, it doesn't matter whatever uh, whether it might yeah. be, we should uh, try to be modest. Yeah. Um, Yes. Um, so, um, climate change. I mean, we're going to be talking shortly to Dr. Nosheen Anwar, who I'm quite excited about, just doing some, who's a research fellow institute at the Development of Studies and specializes in urban planning, infrastructural development, and disaster risk. And that's um, disaster risk mitigation. So, we're going to be talking to her very shortly, but I just wanted to make take a quote from. Dr. Mark McCarthy, who's the head of the Met Office of National Climate Information Centre, and he said that although heat waves are extreme weather events, research shows that the climate change is making these events more likely. Mm. And the scientific study by the Met Office into the summer of 2018 heat wave in the United Kingdom showed that it was 30 times more likely to occur more than from the 1750s because of the higher concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and you mentioned earlier about the brazilian rainforest has kind Mm. of been eroded especially there was a massive fire there as well and the top 10 warmest years for the united kingdom was 1884 they've occurred um 
was the last one, and then since 1884, and then since 2002, the most have been um, in the last has been since then, and it's, and also there are the coldest moments as well. So just kind of a little bit of an introductory to our first guest as we speak with Dr. Nasheen Anwar, who I said earlier was a research fellow at Institute of Development Studies and specialises in urban planning, infrastructural development and disaster risks mitigation. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Nasheen, for joining us today. And it's a, a privilege for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me uh, oh, to, to join you in this conversation. Oh, thank you. Could you start please, by telling us a little bit more about yourself and the Institute of Development Studies. Yes, uh, so I'm an urban planner mm. and uh, by training, and um, I received my PhD in, in city and regional planning in the United States at Columbia University many, many years ago. And I'm now a research fellow in the cities cluster at the Institute for Development Studies, yeah. and uh, my work focuses quite a bit now on um, extreme heat yeah. and, uh, and risk mitigation related issues, but largely focused on uh, cities in the global south. Yeah. And uh, the Institute for Development Studies um, uh, is a research center that was founded in 1966. It's an independent research institute that is based at the University of Sussex, and it has very close links with the university, but it is also financially and constitutionally independent. Hmm. And IDS has a reputation for, uh, for research and having an international outlook that is uh, one of the best in the, in the world. And in fact, um, it's, it's considered the number one um, institute for development studies in the world and has been consistently ranked as number one for international development as an, as an international development think yeah. tank by the 2020 global go-to think tank index report wow sounds 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 uh, amazing so therefore my next question to you is especially when you're talking about urban planning as well in the cities is there a link between heat waves and global warming because the reason why i asked that question in that way is because in the city you've got lots of tall buildings haven't you and with tall buildings with the air flowing is there a way that that can cool the heat as well is that something that you'd consider it's a great question. So, uh, so let me answer your question um, in two ways, along two two lines. First of all, there is now a considerable amount of um, of, uh, of discourse uh, that uh, and evidence that shows that heat waves are very much related to global warming, and mm. the fact that heat waves are now actually increasing um, are now in, for instance, in South Asia. We've seen over the last couple of years that uh, heat waves have been a recurring event. And uh, this year, in across India and Pakistan, which was enveloped in heat waves, back-to-back, back-to-back heat waves over a period of two months, that these events actually happened much earlier in the month of March and continued nonstop until the end of April. And now within the urban context, we have um, slightly more complex situation when it comes to to heat and this is related to the urban heat island effect which is very relevant to cities and uh, and typically what happens is that because of the uhi or the heat, urban heat island effect cities generally can't cool down at night due to the specificity of this radiative thermal moisture and aerodynamic properties mm. that cause the urban heat island effect so uh, but 
but even though UHIs are, are very much sort of an urban phenomenon, heat waves are, are more sort of, you know, they're, they're more regional. So when you see the map of heat waves, the, the, the sort of heat wave that happened across South Asia earlier this year, yeah. uh, it wasn't just specific to cities. It was, you know, it was regional. It was across these massive geographies. But certainly in the urban context, this kind, these kinds of events, when they combine with the, with the urban heat island effect, they do compound the, uh, you know, the, the effects of, uh, of heat waves on the human body and overall uh, in, in the environment. Hmm. Uh, we were discussing earlier about the heat wave that hit um, USA and uh, on average 600 people uh, die yearly in, in the US. But when it comes to the South Asia, um, what does the heat wave mean for the people living in uh, the South Asian climate? Yeah, that's uh, an excellent question because uh, South Asia has a very long history of heat. And uh, so often, you know, people living in South Asia will say, well, you know, what's new about heat? It's always been hot in this part of the world. So I, I, I'm currently in Karachi and, um, you know, in, in across Karachi, Lahore, and uh, cities like Delhi uh, in India and elsewhere. Heat has been, um, you know, a, a sort of a, a part of um, of this region's uh, weather patterns for 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 millennia. But but heat waves, these one-time events, as well as chronic heat, uh, is now impacting uh, vulnerable populations, especially in these cities, in, in very complex ways. Mm. So it the heat waves and global warming are now pushing essentially what people have been, say, accustomed to in terms of high temperatures. Mm -hmm. So the high temperatures that people are living with today in cities like Delhi and Karachi and Lahore are not the kinds of temperatures that existed several hundred years ago, or mm -hmm. I'd say, say maybe even more than 150 years ago. So the idea that because we live in South Asia and South Asia has always been hot, people can cope with it, is a bit of a moral hazard uh, problem because coping in this kind of a uh, sort of global warming and heat wave related environment and chronic heat related environment is not going to be enough and it certainly isn't enough today at all in terms of the kinds of depth that we are seeing um, you know occurring in this part of the world as well as the sorts of health related um, issues that are that are beginning to emerge hmm. and th these heat waves um, do they have a uh, uh, any long-term impacts on the society? Well, certainly. I mean, and, and so, much, so much of this um, aspect of long-term is also uh, somewhat, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a good deal of research that is beginning to emerge today, for instance, on the impact of heat waves and chronic heat, which is a more sustained form, form of heat. Often when people talk about heat waves, it's, you know, sort of the, uh, the, um, the issue is that, well, heat waves are a one-time event. And, but, Chronic heat is something that is more sustained, and and it could be related to you know for instance urban heat islands and and other kinds of environmental factors. So within this context, the impact on people's health is uh, is is a, is a very critical one. So uh, so for instance, um, you know one of the first signs of uh, of long term effects could be for instance on on certain organs of the body, such as the liver. Usually, if you have a, a acute heat exposure, 
um, if you don't die of it, uh, you might have be in a situation where your kidneys are affected because usually those are one of the first organs that are impacted and the impact is very visible. But the, but the liver is also impacted by, by extreme heat exposure and toxicologists certainly have done um, a, you know, a fair amount of research on this. And if you talk to medical experts, especially toxicologists, they will say, well, you know, liver is one of the organs which is the last one to show um, some kind of, um, you know, an impact. And it's usually sort of invisible, it's hidden. And, and the, the impact of, of extreme heat on the liver may not appear until, you know, many years later, as far mm. as the human body is concerned. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really interesting you talk about these long-term effects because we don't even know what the long-term effects of COVID are going to be. I mean, we're seeing them slowly and we don't even know if there's a link to COVID and the heat wave and the way that people are now living closer to, to one another and how the heat is affecting because obviously these are airborne diseases. I mean, that could be something that we will never know much about yet. But does global warming have different consequences for different groups within society? Uh, yes, I, I do believe that. I yeah. believe that um, your your class position, uh, your um, you know the, the the kinds of infrastructural and uh, vulnerabilities that you're exposed to, um, your, your access to land, access to shelter, to housing, um, your you know racialized bodies, gender. All of these things uh, combine to sort of create or generate certain kinds of risks for yeah. specific kinds of uh, populations. So typically we might talk about the elderly uh, as being uh, at risk, but then uh, younger people who are homeless might be at risk, people who don't have access to, to proper shelter or don't have access to proper or consistent health care, don't have access to clean water, uh, don't have access to uh, you know constant, consistent, uninterrupted electricity. Uh, people in these sorts of um, positions are are very much at high risk of heat exposure, and and long term exposure to heat related illnesses as well. Yeah, uh, in- interesting on, on that answer there. Uh, what, so therefore, what preventative measures can be taken uh, for the elderly people, in your opinion? I think um, in many ways Europe has uh, led the way yeah. uh, in in terms of uh, creating or developing these um, heat health warning systems or what are called HHWSs. And uh, Portugal, I think, as early as 1999 mm. led the way on this. And then after 2003, when you know, which was a particularly unprecedented year in Europe, which saw uh, very, very nasty heat waves, and you had, uh, you know, in Paris, something like 15,000 people died. And Europe sort of developed, has developed since then, some very sophisticated heat health warning systems. And um, and this is a system that combines meteorological forecasts and public health actions. Uh, that basically, you know, their primary aim is to reduce heat health-related impacts uh, on human health during hot conditions. And, and these have also been combined with the heat health action plans and, and, and the development of these sorts of early warning systems have now also come into uh, places such as South Asia. And yeah. these are, it's very important to have these kinds of plans in place because they do save lives. But then a great deal more is needed alongside that in terms of also, for instance, from the, from the perspective of urban planning, of, of building cities that yeah. are more resilient, 
you know, and are able to adapt to the kinds of uh, very unprecedented changes that we are seeing in terms of yeah. the climate. I, I, in, in terms of that with the city planning, are tall buildings now able to have heat pumps, for example? Is that a, an easier, better way? I think it's, 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 I mean, there's there's a fair amount of research, uh, empirical research that is coming on this now. I think it, it's really very context-driven. And and there is so much talk about, you know, how to make tall buildings, which can be built with, uh, you know, with different kinds of materials. So there's a tall building, but if it's all concrete and surrounded by asphalt, then, uh, you know, it's, it's also kind of emitting it's also emitting concrete is a you know it's it's a, a concrete is like I think number two or number three um, you know emitters of, uh, of greenhouse gases um, you know globally speaking so it depends on what kind of tall building you're talking about yeah and okay. uh, so and you know and, and where that tall building is situated in terms of its relationship to the to the surrounding environment yeah. to greenery and to you know those sorts of things yeah. so so this is a you know so the response to this is also very context driven context and, and I guess also data driven as well because you'll have to collect so much data to be able to decide on these things. Um, actually you know Dr. Neil would love to carry on talking to you because I've got there's so many questions I've got to ask but as always in a live show we always run out of time so really appreciate your insight into our conversation today and thank you very much for joining us and we wish you all the um, great achievements in your research um, as the fellow at the Institute of Development Studies and your speciality in urban planning. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're most Bye-bye. welcome. Thank you. So again, it's really interesting when we talk about this subject and now the planning because heat waves, as we know, are going to increase. So mm. we've got to design our infrastructure, our buildings, our towns in a way which we can... I guess shade ourselves from these things and mm. build maybe under underground stuff. I don't know. It's all got to be in the urban planning, so it's really interesting. So. I mean, b- building underground uh, infrastructure is a, a very good idea. It could <laughs> yeah. save not just us uh, from heat, but also other types of disasters. That's right. Uh, God forbid if yeah. that happens, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I think we can we can also learn from from uh, the, the 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 Gulf countries or you know uh, um, the countries like Dubai and 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 the Emirates um, and Abu Dhabi yeah. they wherever they have an, uh, a building I think pretty much everywhere they have ACs I mean it consumes a lot of electricity of course but you know uh, the most of the places they they have the AC cars and 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 they go from one place to another place and then the buildings they pretty much have everywhere AC because <laughs> I know someone personally from Dubai and I was asking him how do you, how did you cope with the with the weather yeah and in Dubai was it very difficult and he himself said uh, because he was uh, well off and he was saying that yeah I had a car and of course everywhere where I, where I went uh, there was AC so uh, it's okay but going out during the day yeah. in 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 the weather like that is yeah. is the, the challenge of course yeah. i mean i this is the thing i mean oh, uh, it's the football world cup happening in qatar i mean they postponed it didn't they back to uh, moved it to september 
Okay. So of the because, weather? Yes, okay. exactly right. But they have done everything they can to mitigate from the heat. And it'll be very interesting to see how that works out because mm. obviously not all games, and actually games cannot be played all indoors. So they will yeah. be outdoors. And let's see how they manage to curtail the heat mm. um, in, in those environments as well. I mean, they say that some research have predicted that the higher temperatures in extreme means that there is bigger risks of regions becoming difficult for humans to live and work in. And that's the kind of interesting subject that we had when we spoke with Dr. Noshin Underwood in her research as to how all of this now is going to work through with the risks to human lives. Mm. Uh, And according to Islam, humans are obviously entrusted to look after the earth and it's our duty to repair it protect it as it says in the holy quran doesn't it in mm. it says verily we have made all that is on the earth as an ornament for it and we may try them as to which of them is best in conduct so mm. that's really important as well and i guess the primary cause of climate change is the increasing concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. I mean, for example, I know it's banned, you know, you can't go in your back garden now. For many years now in the United Kingdom, stop burning all your rubbish. Mm. It used to happen a lot. People used to just start bonfires in their back garden and just burn stuff. That is not allowed now. Mm. And, and, you know, it's, and, you know, and also like the burning of fossil fuels on a larger scale Hmm. such as oil gas and coal as as they release carbon dioxide into the air because the way you make petrol and gasoline is you're going to boil the oil at different temperatures and all while you're boiling and creating it all the carbon dioxide is coming in the air so there's there's lots of issues that need to be resolved but it's not just the great businesses and, and the finances of that business, governments need to gain, but we as individuals need to, to force it to happen because the planet is heating up and there's loads of issues that, that are happening, including the deforestation and agriculture. Mm. Yeah, there is a large scientific uh, consensus uh, yeah. that humans are the leading cause of climate change. <laughs> uh, and, uh, of course, due to the deforestation... Yeah. Um, a lot of the trees are cut um, there are not enough trees in the world to offset society's carbon emissions and I remember that uh, His Holiness uh, the 5th Caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community in one occasion I think it was the occasion of uh, one of the peace symposiums in um, in the building that we are at, at the moment um, uh, in Bayt al-Futuh mosque yeah. um, he once mentioned that if you cut one tree, then you should plant two trees yeah. in, in place of that. So that could be covered. Um, again, I will be quoting another um, quotation of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Musroud Ahmed, may Allah be his helper. He spoke on the issue of climate change back in uh, 2012. And he stated that today um, natural disasters are prevalent and there is destruction all around storms and hurricanes are occurring in the u.s at a greater frequency than before the economic crisis is worsening various inhabitations of the world are at a threat of being submerged by water due to a global warming um um we will be continuing with uh the topic of um, you know this uh, the climate change but we have a uh, guest with us um, Ms. Nog Saudan, um, 
who is the Trust and Philanthropy Manager for Cool Earth. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to uh, Drive Time Show. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam, peace be upon you too. Uh, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank it's been interesting you. listening to your program so far. I'm jolly glad you're covering perhaps one of the most important topics that's facing the world today, the yes. climate crisis. Mm, it's, it, it's indeed a very important topic that we are covering and thank you very much uh, that you are already listening. <laughs> so uh, you already know that we were what we were discussing today. Could you tell us uh, a bit more about the cool earth? What is it? Yeah, cool earth is um, a, a charity that was set up back in 2007 by, um, he was then Frank Field, the MP, <coughs> who's now Lord Field of Birkenhead. And he believed very strongly that poverty was one of the issues that um, created um, deforestation. And obviously deforestation is something that I think contributes roughly to about 12% of all global CO2 emissions. Mm. And of course, we all know that trees are one of the best things to store um, CO2 in their roots. And so they're also... um, they have the potential to provide up to about 30% of the mitigation we need to keep our global temperatures down to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Mm-hmm. So Cool Earth has been working with people who live in the tropical rainforests from the Amazon to the Congo Basin across to New Guinea. And over the last 15 years, we've been helping these people support them in their livelihoods as they've lived in the rainforests for generations they know best how to keep the trees standing mm. and prevent deforestation. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. And and something that we also are, uh, you know, worried about, and you also said about rainforest, it's it's a very important, uh, you know, thing for, for, for humans. Does the climate change affect the rainforest as well? Yeah, it does indeed, actually. Um, Sometimes people think it only really affects those of us in the global north, but um, in Papua New Guinea, for instance, they have bad problems with flooding, which causes salination of all the um, water tanks in the ground. And obviously, um, I know you've already mentioned the wildfires, um, and we're actually working with um, a local um, non-governmental organization in Peru to help prevent... Um, the spread of wildfires. Obviously, fires mm. are um, one of the ways that people living in the rainforest manage their land, but not to the extent of the wildfires that are happening. So it's a combination, really, of flooding and drought and wildfires that affect the rainforest as well as us. Mm. It's really interesting that you talk about that, but I wanted to just ask you about your organization's claims that people are the climate crisis solution. <laughs> Could you explain that? And I may have a follow-up question to that as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, we've always backed people, and our, our mission is um, to back local people to protect rainforest and fight the climate crisis. There are plenty of other ways that people have of trying to prevent the climate crisis. Obviously, you've talked already about heat pumps in tall buildings and things, and these are all well and good and we all need to adopt these ways to improve our own lifestyle Mm. but um, the people who live in the rainforest have lived there for generations 
they know best how to manage their rainforest. And there's tremendous biodiversity within the rainforest, which is also important for us, you know, for medicinal plants and oxygen, water, all the biodiversity um, within the rainforest is equally important as the trees themselves. And the people who live there know what needs to be looked after and how they need to do it. So what what Cool Earth does is um, listen to the people who approach us, who want to work with us, and we give them cash directly to support their livelihoods. So if they're lifted out of poverty and that they're able to, you know, improve their um, cacao production or their coffee plantations or their coconut press, get better oil... They then can improve their livelihoods and they can remain in the rainforest and look after it rather than disappearing off into local towns, abandoning the rainforest. And then you just get illegal logging and mining and the rest of it, which will just take the trees down. Yeah, and I, I totally understand, and kind of you've answered my kind of follow-up question, but I now have another question that I wanted to ask yeah. you in relation to that, because you say you give cash, but how much of this that you're describing um, is a responsibility of the big organisations? I mean, we've just come out of COP26 that have yeah. pledged trillions of pounds uh, to solve these problems, to keep people out of poverty to stop the global warming how much a responsibility do they play and is it only them that can do it or is it government that need to get involved as well because a lot of the problems that we're seeing around the world and the people who are living in poverty in these stricken countries where they are suffering they're unable to make a difference themselves in a way absolutely i mean i i think we would take the approach that Obviously, you know, we need as many routes as possible to yeah. help these people survive. And um, there would never be one that was more important than the other. What Cool Earth has always believed, we, we set up um, to help lift people out of poverty ourselves and through our donors, who we're hugely grateful to, who support our work. And um, we believe that the people who live there are the, one, the people that will manage their forest better than anyone else sure. trying to do it for yeah. them. Yeah. Um, I think it goes in, in all aspects of society and life, really, that there are some people who, who know better how to manage their own area and sector. Yeah, yeah. yeah I understand that. I mean, yeah, empower them to do it. We just give them money and raise the money for them. So and the knock-on effect is that we're cool earth in a way, um, and, and we have to have that responsibility to do that, the big businesses, and COP26 should acknowledge that. And I, and I, and I understand exactly where we're coming from. We're, we're very, you know, we obviously, you know, we're very interested in COP26, mm-hmm. and I think people, um, you know, from around the world will also have been interested in the upshot of COP26. But, you know, time is very tight now, and... Um, the work to prevent the climate crisis kind of went into abeyance slightly during the ghastly pandemic we've been through. And so we feel that, you know, the couple of years that, that have been lost through that, we have to catch up on that. And we feel that the climate crisis needs to be right at the top of the world's agenda again, as, as it was beforehand. And, um, you know, there's no time to be lost, really. Yeah, got it. I totally understand. And 
we are definitely on course of if we don't make a change we are on course for a real bad destruction so we've all got to work together and the work that you're doing cool earth is fantastic and we wish you all the best of luck and we support you in the uh, activities and what your and and your aims and goals thank you very much really appreciate that thank you you're welcome thank you so that was uh, Miss Nog Sordon. She's the Trust and Philanthropist Manager for Cool Earth. So fantastic, Zaki, talking to her and the work that mm. they're doing um, and how they're empowering people to actually do the work and, mm. and keep out of poverty. And I and, and I, I would agree to a lot of what uh, Miss Nog was saying. So it sounds brilliant to me. Mm. So I guess the next thing that we prompted that very short interlude there, we um, want to turn... Um, in how we can turn your heating... I mean, give some examples. We've had some examples that have come through. But here's a few lists before we play an audio clip that we've we've queued up from His Holiness. There's a Mizzah Masoor Ahmed, who is the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association. But we wanted to just share some examples that have come through and also some that we've got down here as well. So... Some of the sort of changes that you can do is obviously I've heard this one quite often is turn down your heating when not needed. And also what that means also in the cold winter times, if you just dropped your temperature, say, by about two or three degrees, you didn't have to have it piping hot. That would also make a massive difference as well. Mm. And and obviously turning off lights and electrical appliances when you don't need them because there's so many things that are on standby, right? So yeah. many things. Mm. We can also uh, replace light bulbs uh, with LEDs um, or other low energy lights instead of, you know, LED lights are quite you know, good actually. Yeah, these LED lights. So you, 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 so for example, if you remember the old kind of lights, yeah. tungsten lights, you put your hand to them or get yeah. your hand close to them. They're really warm. Really warm. Right? Yeah. Now these LED lights are still giving massive amounts of brightness, but at a mix, at a minimum of wattage, mm. it will give you. So like a seven watt would give you an equivalent of what the tungsten 100 watt light would give you, mm. and plus is there's no heat to it. So you're right. It, it's it, safe as well. It's safer than you know yeah, normal bulbs, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Uh, another tip that you could follow is uh, not to waste. Um, you know, not not to use too much of hot water. Um, in regards to this, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings Allah be upon him, um, set a golden rule for uh, for us as Muslims, and he said that don't waste water, even if you were by a running river. Yeah. I mean. I'm running river you can really you can't really waste the water because it's just flowing but even if you can then you shouldn't waste water that means don't use it for unnecessary things I guess and he continues and the, um, the Holy Prophet uh, states that this is because water is the origin of life as the Holy Quran says and we made from water every living thing so it's a very essential part of our lives of course the reason we can't go to other planets i guess and not going to mars and all that yeah. is because we don't have any water <laughs> <laughs> isn't it otherwise we probably have you know yeah that's right uh, made that step as well yeah um, i mean obviously keep sending in your examples as well but we we've had some uh, examples come in how people have um given us some ideas in terms of our response to our question asking on Instagram and you know some examples of how you would cool down 
yeah. in, in the heat wave. And we've just given some examples of some sort of changes you should do yourself. But we, we had some, this one, I'm not entirely sure um, how this works. But anyway, don't use the oven because I kind of like using the oven as well. But it, I yeah. guess it's, um, and that came in from um, Mummy's Food Mission. So <laughs> interesting, don't use the oven and maybe cook more natural food, Full I suppose, natural, right? Yeah. So don't don't reheat food. But obviously mm. people do cook their roast chicken in the oven, don't they? And they yeah. Um, but that's an interesting it's one. easier way, but of course, the better way, a healthier way is not to cook in, in, in an oven, of course. Um We've got other um, responses as well. Yeah. Uh, same from the same person across ventilations at home. Yeah, um, very clever person. Then. Mm-hmm. And uh, keep blinds down. Yeah, that's also a good good. Uh, instead of you know using the the the, the fan more often, you can just uh, darken the uh, the, uh, the the room. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's small, colder. Yeah. And uh, more natural in a. Uh, yeah, so you don't end up with a greenhouse effect in the house. We have when, when the blinds are up and then yeah. it comes in, it just through the window, it just heat the whole place up. Exactly. So by just literally dropping the blinds, you can reduce the temperature mm. in the room. And there's another one: drink lots of water. That's a good one. Yeah. You know, um, I, I there was this one company that was selling little um, sponges that would live in of a bottle of water. It would live in your lid of a of a bottle of water yeah. and in that you would it's like a um a towel but it's all rolled up oh yes and it's like a cotton that's right if you dropped in a couple of drops of water it would it would blow up and it would be able to um Completely wipe your face down, yeah. right? Having to use so much water, I thought exactly, that was a yeah. fascinating. I mean, it's thing. A, I think it's a very good thing in uh, for those countries who have less water, um, yeah. and and especially if you're in a crisis, this is something that you should have uh, in your house. Uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yes, and uh, yeah, l- drinks a lot of water from someone else as well. Um, from Fadia Farouk, um, Saiba, she says that keep yourself hydrated. Yeah. Uh, very important, of course. Yeah. Um, so I, I, w- what I wanted to do was to play a two-minute clip from His Holiness, um, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, who is the current caliph of our worldwide organization, and who spoke about how we can tackle climate change. I think that's... Uh, would like to play that, um, and then we will then carry on with our discussion. This climate change problem is the issue everywhere all across the world. And especially in the third world countries where the population is increasing in numbers without any proportion. Just to accommodate this population, you are increasing your residential areas. And because of increasing the residential areas, you are cutting the forest. So this deforestation is also causing climate change. So whenever you cut any tree, you should plant two trees to replace that tree. And whenever your population is increasing, you should also increase in that area where there is already some clear area, not that you do deforestation. And apart from that, fuel consumption should also be reduced. Now we have become so lazy that if we want to go from 
one place to the other place and the distance is only 100 yards or 200 yards instead of walking to the place we shall take our motorbike or the car to go to that place right and in this way also you are polluting the atmosphere and there are so many other factors which are causing pollution and climate change although we cannot say that because of the fear of uh, climate change, we should not produce children or do family planning. No, but at the same time, we should plan in such a way that the forest should not be cut without any proportion. If you cut one tree, you plant two trees, start new developments, residential developments in those areas which are near to the town and the, the big villages so that the forests are not disturbed and at the same time use less such type of vehicles which are being run by fuels and making pollution in the atmosphere. Some sound advice there from the current head of the Worldwide Ahmadi Muslim Association, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed Amela, be his helper at all times. And I think even these kind of instructions that we receive um, we get them all the time from His Holiness, don't we? All the yeah. way through COVID, all the way through everything that we ever need guidance and help with. His Holiness has, has always been there for us. Definitely. Uh, His Holiness, not just occasionally, uh, once in a year, but uh, we receive this guidance in a regular way, especially with this Friday sermons that he gives from uh, Islamabad, mm. from Tilford. Um, and and this is how we are actually being guided, and we're very fortunate to have a a, a spiritual leader who has been appointed from God Almighty, who guides us in every single step, not just spiritually, but also in a uh, in a in a secular way as well, and um, you know the way we should um, live in this life. And and uh, as you know, we've quoted His Holiness's words in the first hour as well. And also in in in, the, in this hour, where we spoke about the first hour, we spoke about the meat standards, how we should treat the animals that we eat, or not even just animals that we eat, but also animals that you know benefit us. Um, and of course, uh, we've learned so much from the for the second hour as well, from the uh, you know heat wave, um, what we can do to reduce that, yeah. and what effects it has on. Uh, on our behavior what effects you know it can have on on us as well so it all comes to us so if we treat the world right then the world will be treating uh, back the same way but if we <laughs> um you know destroy the world then it will affect us of course Brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think you're right. I think both nice summaries for the two hours that we've been talking about and, and how it affects us. And we are, you know, coming up to the top of the hour and it was really great to have a, a listen from a quote from His Holiness yeah. as well. And I, 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 w- I would say, yeah, I mean, we have got to be more benevolent to... Um, our animals we need to understand exactly what the effect is and and how we as a a country need to understand that the animals are there for us we need to treat them well Mm. and we and also we don't need to overeat therefore and also we need to treat them with humility 
and I think that's really good. And obviously, with the with the next part of that, because it all kind of feels it falls into it, doesn't it? Because the methane gas, etc., that comes from all of the cattle around the world, is also having an effect on on the climate change as mm. well. And then we spoke about the heat waves. So all of that is is all really interesting, and in how it all kind of plays into one another, and how we need to remain, I guess, tolerant and understanding to what we give back to this world. Mm, so, so just at the end, just want to say thank you to our producers, Khansa Razak and Amatul Bari Khan for putting the shows together for us and the, and the team in the background. And obviously for you being here with me, Saki, Same to me. Thank you very much for <laughs> coming and, and, and having that wonderful discussion with us. Here's the news.